This cycle of the high of pleasure and the subsequent emotional crash deepens the brain pathways. Over time, the person goes from repeating behavior because of the pleasure of it to doing it because he needs it. When the craving becomes more intense than ever, while the actual pleasure enjoyed becomes minimal, the habit has crossed the line into an addiction. A great many people probably have never heard of dopamine, and most would guess from the sound of it that it's some kind of drug. That's not a bad guess, but dopamine is the natural hormone that is released in the brain that causes you to experience pleasure. It's even released when you anticipate pleasure. And so yes, it is a drug. You can get addicted to your own hormones. We talk about that today and the role of the pleasure hormone in addiction to pornography. I'm your host, Jim Lewis. This is Purity for Life. In the Declaration of Independence, Thomas Jefferson wrote that all men are endowed by their Creator with the inalienable right to pursue happiness. That sounds right, doesn't it? But that's not biblical. Nowhere in Scripture are we enjoined to pursue happiness. It is the hedonistic pursuit of happiness and pleasure and comfort and the meeting of temporal desires that leads to emptiness, misery, addiction, and pain. In Scripture, we are commanded to pursue not happiness, but holiness and a right relationship with God. I'm joined today by Jordan Yoshimine, who's no stranger to Purity for Life. He serves our residential program as Assistant Director of Counseling. Jordan, welcome. Thanks for being here today. Oh, my pleasure. We're talking today, Jordan, about the pursuit of happiness. A couple facts just to get us started. In most translations of the Bible, the word happiness never appears at all in the New Testament, That's God right. promises joy, which is a fruit of the Holy Spirit, but we are never promised happiness, guaranteed happiness, nor is it even mentioned in the Bible. The word pleasure, however, appears in the New Testament five times, and every single time it is in a negative context. Jesus talks about uh, the Word of God being choked out by worries and riches and pleasures of this life. Paul says that we were once foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures. James says that the thing that causes conflicts and quarrels among us is the pleasures that wage war in our members. This is the Greek word edne, from which we get our English word hedonism, that ever-increasing, all-consuming desire for more and more pleasure. Not a great context. The word appears in the New Testament that means the love of pleasure. And that 
falls in Paul's rather lengthy list of sins that will characterize the last day. Men will be haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. He puts those two in direct contrast to each other, and that's in 2 Timothy 3. Now, I've laid this foundation for a reason. I know that Thomas Jefferson wrote that we have an inalienable right to the pursuit of happiness. And while that might be American, it is certainly not biblical. In the Bible, we are to pursue holiness, not happiness. Hebrews 12, 14. Jordan, I want you to share with us from your personal experience how you fell into the pursuit of happiness above all things. Even apart from your life of sexual sin, you were a pleasure junkie. How did this play out in your life? Uh, That's a good question, Jim. Here is the first thing that I have to admit. I'm not proud to admit it. Um, Having grown up in uh, a Christian home, my dad was a pastor. I think I've shared before, my grandfather's pastor. I have a rich cultural Christian heritage. Right. Um, But I was biblically uh, illiterate. I did not know much about what the Word of God said about the things you just mentioned. Okay. uh, Happiness versus holiness. So because of my lack of understanding of the Bible and really kind of my own rebellion and my desire to please myself, um, the only thing I had to fall back on was looking at West, Western culture as my guide, right? I mean, it's just, okay, what is everyone else doing? Well, right. it says, as you mentioned uh, in your introduction, in our Declaration of Independence says, you know, we have the right as American citizens to pursue happiness. That's right. So that was my MO. That was my modus operandi. That's what I lived my life by to please, to be happy. I thought God wanted me to be happy. Mm, Sure. So why not just go out and pursue that? But what does that mean? It means that I pursued every avenue. I mean, just even outside of my sexual sin. And I was in the church, but that meant movies, whatever was out there that people were talking about, I wanted to go see. Sure. Um, if it was an Academy Award nominee, I was going to go see it. I wanted to know what was going on. For me, one of the things that really captured my heart and made me happy was Disney. I was I grew up as a very small child being fascinated with Disneyland and all things Disney. And that just carried through to my teen years and adult years. So... Uh, to pursue happiness was to do all things Disney. That meant going to Disneyland, going to Disney World, going on Disney cruises, Disney, Disney, Disney. And then, of course, for me, another big thing was uh, sports, sporting events. I'm not athletic, uh, but I do enjoy watching sports. And uh, hockey in particular was uh, something that I fell in love with. And it, I would watch the rush of seeing a goal scored or a rush of happiness that would come um, when uh, the Ducks, the Anaheim Ducks would win or the agony of defeat when they would lose and seeing them win the Stanley Cup, all were things that I was just actively pursuing. Are those things sin? 
Absolutely not. They are not sinful in and of themselves. So uh, with that in mind, I just continue to pursue, continue to pursue, continue to pursue, because I wanted those things made, those particular things made me happy. Jordan, you used the word rush. I mean, that word came out of your mouth. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) Pastor Steve is going to talk in his 20 Truths about the release of dopamine, the pleasure hormone, which is why we get addicted to sex. Dopamine is released in massive amounts during both fantasy and sexual climax. We get addicted to the dopamine high. We get addicted to the rush. But dopamine is released in many other activities as well. It's released during eating enjoyable foods, making us junk food junkies. It's released while we're watching entertainment, while we're watching TV, while we're playing video games while we're watching the sports event. And so there is an addictive quality to a lot of these entertainment venues. It's released during activities like shopping, when you find that perfect thing you've been looking for at the greatest price. How did you become a dopamine junkie? How did that find its way into your life? Well, you know, you you mentioned 2 Timothy 3, 4, where it says we become lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Right. And for me, that, and you can go to Exodus chapter 20, verse 3, where it says, thou shalt not have any other gods before you. And what happened when I started uh, putting those things and placing those things above the Lord, Mm -hmm. then it starts taking on a different form. For instance... I'm a big 49er fan. Uh, They're doing very well this season, by the way. And I love pro football in general. And before I came on staff at our church, if it was a Sunday during, and there was a good game on, I I would skip church. I wouldn't go to church. I would stay home and watch whoever the the big game. If there was a big game, it was a kind of a question. Am I going to go to church or am I going to stay home and watch the football game? Where was my heart? Right? So it it is that exchange or that uh, kind of that spiral into, okay, it's just a hobby. It's just something that uh, I like doing. or And then it becomes, like you said, it becomes an obsession. It becomes something that I have to do. It becomes an idol in my life. And that many, many things. Not forget, I mean, sexual sin aside, if I never had sexual sin in my life, there were plenty of other things in my right. life that were huge, huge issues that needed to be dealt with. And sexual sin was just one part of it. It was part that the Lord used to expose the idolatry in my heart. But entertainment, sports, vacations, you know, relaxation. Mm-hmm. I mean, there were so many different things that took the place and precedence over my relationship with God because they would it was that pursuit of happiness. Right. I thought it was my right even as a Christian to be happy. Now, Jordan, you've mentioned Disney already. Mm-hmm. I don't know that you said that you worked at Disney, mm-hmm. but you did. You worked at Disneyland. Sure. A major portion of your career was in restaurants. Sure. You have worked in the food industry mm-hmm. a lot mm-hmm. in your life. And so you have seen people for whom amusement and entertainment is an addiction, an obsession. You have seen how obsession about food and eating has played out 
in people's lives. Give me some of your firsthand experience about people who are obsessed with entertainment, with amusement, or with food. Yeah, well, working in the restaurants, and I worked at a soup and salad buffet restaurant for uh, almost 12 years, and we would occasionally have people come in and just gorge themselves. And of course, we would find out through employees that they were going into the restroom and throwing up. Mm. And the thing that is is interesting, and you know, I still go to Disney, uh, Disney World. I still uh, go to those places. I have a de- definitely a different perspective on them. I guess people are not, and I honestly, I can tell you, I, I don't know how much longer I'm going to be able to go to those places because sure. it, people that go to those places are in a different flow than what the Lord has built into me, and they're not. They're seeking happiness. They are obsessed with happiness, but if you look on their faces, they are not happy. Mm-hmm. It's like the only thing that's going to give them happy is completing, like going on a ride, right? And going on that particular, whatever the hot attraction is, that right, the hot roller coaster that year is. But it's a three-minute ride, and once it's done, they've waited three hours in line for a three-minute rush, and then they're like, okay, on to the next thing that right. is going to make me happy. And they ca- they have to feed what I call feeding the beast. Yeah. And that's at amusement parks. You could just see it. You know, you just sit there and watch as an employee, as a cast member, and watch people just go from one ride or w- one food or one snack to the next to, in order to, to keep that level of pleasure up. And here's here's the interesting thing. The pursuit of happiness, why are so many people depressed? Why is depression on the rise? Why is suicide on the rise? Yeah. It's because there's such an emphasis on being happy that when people aren't happy, they think something's wrong. Mm-hmm. Right? So then it's like, okay, I'm not happy. And if, it, if there's any length of time where they're not happy, then they become depressed. And then Satan can come in and start lying to them. Well, right. You're depressed. What's the problem? You're, you know, and then, then it becomes like they lose hope, and then Satan can come in and say, "Well, if you're not hope, if there's no hope, you can never be happy. These things aren't making you happy. If there's nothing to fill that void, the only, the only option, or what's becoming more of an option now, is suicide. That's right. And that's why you're seeing it, seeing it uh, on the rise, is because. Western culture is putting such an emphasis on personal happiness that when people are not happy, they think there's something there's, wrong. They, they, they think there's something wrong. And, so, and it, it's right. That's right. There is something wrong. It's the pursuit of happiness. Jordan, you also obsessively pursued pleasure through years of sexual sin. That's what brought you to Pure Life. That's what brought us all here. What can you tell us about how your pursuit of sin overtook your whole life? Wow. Um, It became, I mean, it was really about being happy and um, having some sort of pleasure because my life was so void of that. Mm Mm-hmm. I was not um, where I thought I would be career-wise. I was not married. I was not, I didn't have a house. I didn't, you know, I had a very old car. 
I didn't have money in the bank, you know, all these things that I thought would make me happy. So it was like, I, even though I, at that point I was back in church and very involved in church, I was not happy. And, and I wanted to be happy or feel good about something. And that lie led me to uh, fall back into sin. And it just spiraled out of control to the point where even, here's how bad it was, even when I knew what I was doing would not make me happy, I did it anyway. Mm-hmm. And I was in, and, and that, that's, that's bondage. That's not that's not doing something that you have control of. That is bondage. That's enslavement to that sin. And I was enslaved and in bondage to that sin. It was killing me. Yeah. It was killing my spirit, it was killing my soul, it was killing everything. I was dying inside. Um and yet I had to feed it. I had to keep feeding it. I had to keep feeding it. I had to keep feeding it. Um and it was um when did I cross that line from it being something that was just a sin uh, to something that actually controlled me? Um, man, I don't even know. Yeah. I couldn't even tell you. I mean, I'm trying to think of when that line was. It's just when when anything takes the place of God, that's when you're in trouble. That's when you're enslaved. It. That's when it becomes an idol. And it became an idol to me probably when I was... Uh, even before I had my first physical encounter. Now I want to fast forward into your time in the program, and I've heard your testimony. It really was an epiphany for you. Mm-hmm. What did it take for you to see the idolatry of the pursuit of happiness? How did that happen for you? Well, I mean, there was a very, very specific incident where my counselor, Brother Ken, asked me what my biggest idol was. And I couldn't think of anything. I thought of hockey, of course. I had a nice, beautiful forerunner, Toyota forerunner. And I said those things, but they really felt empty. And uh, he let it go. He didn't, he wanted me to um, work through it. And I walked out of his office and I walked uh down the hall, and you said epiphany. It was exactly that. It was like the Lord just, Holy Spirit broke through and said, you and your desire to please yourself have been your biggest idol. How about that? Your desire to please yourself. And then then you, it's amazing. Then all the devastation I wreaked on my parents, all the bitterness, all the anger that I directed towards my parents and blamed my parents for just, wow, it was just, I was undone. All the hurt that I've created uh, in my church family and uh, with friends and family, all the times that I used people to get what I wanted and manipulated and deceived. And man, it just, oh, it was uh, very ugly to see yourself, but very uh, liberating because once I saw that, then I knew what I needed to do and I needed to repent of my love of self, my love of pleasure, my love of um, happiness and pursuing happiness above all and and turn from that and turn to uh, pursuing the Lord and pursuing holiness. And there's something that happens, Jim, 
um, that is amazing. The, what the Bible does talk about endlessly um, is joy. Mm-hmm. And people will think that it's the same thing, and they're not the same. Th- Happiness is not one of the fruit of the Spirit. Right. Joy is. Mm-hmm. Joy is often associated with, in the same passage, in the same context as pain and suffering. Yeah, yeah. And, and it's amazing that when you start pursuing the Lord and pursuing Him and make Him Lord of your life, pursuing Him and holiness rather than happiness, then there's something that happens in you, and it's a joy, and a joy that's made complete, and a joy that's ever-expanding, not something that you have to, you know, that's fleeting. It's it's something that uh, deepens over time, and and joy is like confidence. Joy is like assurance. Joy builds faith. Joy is... Um, it's not an emotion. No. It is not an emotion that is fleeting. It is something that the Lord provides to complete who you are in Christ. We are told in Scripture, Jordan, to pursue peace. We're told to pursue peace with all men. But we're also told to pursue that holiness without which no one will see the Lord. So we're not to pursue happiness, but we are to pursue holiness. Talk to me about your pursuit of holiness and how that has meant more to you than the pursuit of happiness ever could. (laughs) I wish I could say that it's been, you know, full of, uh, like, uh, successes and stuff like that. Like, I've, you know, been perfect at it, but the... The reality is that in my pursuit of holiness, there are a lot of stumbles and detours and um, failures. I'm not saying going back to sexual sin, but we, we begin to see ourselves. And the Lord begins to expose who we've been uh, before we, we began that pursuit of holiness. And it's a death to self. Mm-hmm. It's painful. Mm-hmm. It's very, very painful. It is very painful to let go of some of those idols. I had to lay down Disney. I needed to lay it down, and it needed to die. And so there are some very, very painful things. Sports, I still really haven't really picked that back up. I mean, I really have to fight that all the time. But the pursuit of holiness just brings, if you think about Philippians four, six through nine, where it talks about the peace that passes all understanding. Man, when you have a grateful heart, when you are lift up your prayers to him, uh, when you uh, consider whatever is true, whatever is right, whatever is noble, whatever is pure, and you meditate on those things, Mm -hmm. man, the peace comes. And it's not peace in your circumstances, it's peace in your spirit. And you have to really recognize the difference or else or else you're still pursuing happiness. I hope that makes sense. Yeah. If, if you're pursuing happiness, then circ- your circumstances have to ha- be peaceful in order for you to have peace. But the way the when you pursue holiness, when you're pursuing the Lord, when you're seeking His face, when you're looking to Him, 
then when trials and tribulations come in the midst of those trials and tribulations, there will be peace. There will be thanksgiving. Mm-hmm. There will be joy. There will be rest. Um, I know that's hard to understand, but it's just the difference between um, happiness, the temporal, the world, and holiness, etern- uh, eternally, heavenly-minded, um, seeking the Lord, um, Christ-centered, His will, not our own. So, um, yeah, when we pursue holiness, man, it's <laughs> it's crazy because it's not. Here's the other thing: it's not even ourselves. You know, I mean, when we're pursuing holiness and we allow the Lord to live in us and then through us, there is so much pressure that is taken off of us. That's right. Does that make sense? Yeah. It's, it's like it's like when we pursue holiness, when we're looking to Jesus, when he is the author and finisher of our faith, when it's all him and not us, man, I don't I don't have to be worried. I don't have to be anxious. I don't have to be fear because he's the, the God of the universe is living and dwelling within me. And then he's the one that does all this, all the work. And it's amazing to see him do the work. And you're like, oh, right. wow, this is how it always was intended to be for me to just be an empty vessel and, and let uh, empty myself out of myself of myself and let him fill me and then let him do whatever he wants, whatever his will is to do through me. And then it's just like, wow, this is what pursuing holiness is all about, is allowing the Lord to live in me and through me. And then it's like, oh, well, and it's, wow. And it's not even about me, right? I mean, in the end, it's not, really not about being focused on my happiness. It's being focused on uh, bringing others into God's holiness and who he is. And so it's just, man, your perspective completely changes. It is amazing. What happens when we pursue holiness? When we, when we desire to have joy in our lives and not, and not happiness? Uh, happiness is a lie. John ten ten kill still and you know still kill and destroy or life life abundantly. It's always those you know. That's right. You know happiness is gonna is a lie. It's the counterfeit, right? If you think about, it. happiness is the counterfeit of joy. Happiness is the counterfeit of holiness. When a man engages in sexual fantasy, when he is sexually stimulated, and when he completes the sexual act, at every stage, dopamine is released in the brain. In this segment from our YouTube series, 20 Truths That Helped Me in My Battle with Porn Addiction, Pure Life founder Steve Gallagher describes the important role the pleasure hormone plays in how and why we get addicted to pornography and other forms of sexual sin. Okay, truth number six. Behind sexual addiction lies the pleasure hormone. But before we get to that human hormone, I want to tell you about a Greek word called prasso. According to the Strong's Bible Dictionary, prasso means to perform some behavior repeatedly or habitually. Now this is a really important concept to understand because it touches on our eternal destinies. In John 5, Jesus said that his heavenly Father put all judgment into his hands. He went on to say that the day would come when the dead would come forth, those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life, those who practiced Prasso, the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. The Living Bible says 
those who have continued in evil, which is another accurate way of saying it. So the people he was referring to were those who habitually practice evil deeds. The Apostle Paul later reconfirmed this when he said, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body, according to what he has done, prasso, what he has practiced, whether good or bad. There it is again. Then in Galatians 5, he covered it in greater detail when he listed out 19 different vices and ends it with this ominous warning. Those who practice such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. And what was right at the top of his list? Immorality, impurity, and sensuality. But how exactly does a person go from occasionally indulging in some form of sexual sin to becoming addicted to it? Okay, to give you any sort of worthwhile answer, I'll have to go all scientific on you now. And I need to throw out a disclaimer that this is not my area of expertise. But I have read up on it some, and I think you'll find it interesting. The human brain contains a vast system of nerves. Every thought or action a person does sends an electric pulse through that complex of nerves. When he starts repeating that behavior, those nerves become connected to each other through a brain chemical known as a neurotransmitter. In essence, what happens is that the brain develops pathways that these chemical signals travel on. A good way to think of it is a field full of weeds and brush lying between two villages. Over time, people walking back and forth between these villages develop a trail that becomes wider, smoother, and easier to walk on. And that is how the Lord created the human being's ability to form a habit. Now we tend to think of habits in a negative way, but habits are extremely important to us because they're what allow our bodies to function effectively. I mean, what would it be like if you hadn't developed the habit of walking or eating or typing or whatever? By repeating the behavior, we get increasingly more proficient at it until it becomes second nature to us. Again, this is made possible because of the pathways those neurotransmitters travel on. One of the most important neurotransmitters the brain produces is called dopamine. It's been called the feel-good hormone because it's associated with the motivation to repeat pleasurable experiences. This is how God established within us the desire to eat and to procreate. When a person enjoys some small pleasure in life, such as eating a piece of chocolate or watching a favorite baseball player hit a home run, a small amount of dopamine is released in his brain. Like other neurotransmitters, it moves through those nerve highways. However, dopamine's different from other neurotransmitters because the amount that is released into the brain's nerve center is dependent on the level of pleasure that was just experienced. Extreme examples of this would be the first time a person snorts cocaine or ejaculates. That level of intense pleasure causes a powerful surge of dopamine to flood the brain. It's actually the dopamine that produces the feelings of euphoria that are associated with such experiences. Dopamine not only contributes to the experience of pleasure, but also plays a crucial role in learning and memory two key elements in the transition from liking something to becoming addicted to it. As a person repeats the pleasurable experience that produces this rush of dopamine, it quickly creates a shortcut highway through the brain system. 
So for instance, it may take a young person weeks to get in the habit of brushing his teeth, but only take days to establish a powerful habit of masturbation. That's because the release of dopamine causes the brain to quickly create mental highways for impulses to travel on. The physiological sensation that occurs with this rush of dopamine is so powerful that sights, sounds, and even smells present during the experience can produce a lifelong association with that sexual experience. The sense of smell is especially susceptible to this phenomenon. There have been occasions years after I started walking in victory when I've caught a whiff of a particular smell that was associated with my sexual routines and instantly felt that old craving come back over me. Let's get back to this dopamine rush I was talking about. We were created to experience this sort of thing on occasion, but not over and over again. The problem for a sex addict is that the brain receptors become overwhelmed. So the brain compensates for this by producing less dopamine as these chemical surges continue. Over time, every new sexual experience brings about a decrease in the euphoric sensation that dopamine produces. It's the scientific reality of what lies behind the principle of the diminishing returns of sin. What began as exhilarating experiences eventually lose their luster. And praise God for that. This drop in the level of dopamine also leads to a physical, emotional, and spiritual crash. This, in turn, can bring about feelings of depression. So what does the addict do? He returns to the same old behavior, hoping for the intense pleasure and euphoria he experienced earlier. This cycle of the high of pleasure and the subsequent emotional crash deepens the brain pathways. Over time, the person goes from repeating behavior because of the pleasure of it to doing it because he needs it. When the craving becomes more intense than ever, while the actual pleasure enjoyed becomes minimal, the habit has crossed the line into an addiction. So how do you overcome these physiological effects associated with sin? Well, I'll tell you what played a significant role in turning my life around. As I began establishing godly habits in my life, new neural pathways were developed in my brain. The more I continued to practice those spiritual disciplines, the deeper those pathways were established. Not only did these new neural pathways replace the old sinful ones, but they also cemented into my daily life the very things that would allow the Lord to infuse my inner being with the life of God and the power of God. Over time, thinking and acting biblically became second nature to me. This may help to explain what the Lord had in mind when he prompted Paul to write this wonderful passage in Philippians 4. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, let your mind dwell on these things. The things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace shall be with you. Yes, he will be with you and he will also give you an entirely different way of thinking and acting and living.
The comic strip philosopher Pogo famously said, We have met the enemy, and it is us. The Apostle Paul tells us that we have an enemy that resides in our own souls, a fleshly nature that hates God and wages war against the Spirit. Every Christian has experienced this sometimes intense internal struggle. Surely there must be a way of defeating this enemy within and saying no to the flesh. There are sure strategies for winning the war against the flesh. I am joined in the studio today by Chuck Woodruff. Chuck is a biblical counselor here at Pure Life Ministries. Chuck, it's good to have you here today. Good morning. Glad to be here. Chuck, we're here today to talk about the sin nature, what Paul calls the flesh. Specifically, we're going to answer the question today, can we say no to the flesh? But to get us started, define what Paul means when he speaks about our flesh. Well, one of the things about this word flesh, because we find it actually throughout the entire New Testament, a majority of that time, really, it's just describing a human being or the human race in our general. Our physical body. Our physical body, correct. Okay. Correct. But where we really find what Paul is talking about here, uh, I believe you find that mostly and primarily in the book of Romans, mm-hmm. starting in chapter 6, running through chapter 8, smattered throughout some of his other smaller epistles, but uh, you really see it emphasized in Romans chapter 8, where it's mentioned uh, like 13 times in the first 13 verses. Right. And the definition that he's using there for that Greek word, sarx, he's talking about it's like the body which is dominated by sin, or that part of us, you know, that unregenerate and sinful state, basically our sinful nature yeah. uh, that is a part of us. So we have a sin nature that resides in our body, in our soul. Correct. Chris Lungard, in his wonderful little work, updating the work of Puritan author John Owen, calls our flesh the enemy within. And so the Christian is in a spiritual battle with the godless world culture around us. James and John both speak about our enmity with the world. We're in a battle with Satan and his spiritual forces of wickedness. We see that in Ephesians 6. But we also have an enemy within our own soul. Describe for us the battle that wages between the flesh and the spirit. I think the best really place to look at what exactly goes on in us, you also you can, again, look at uh, Paul's writings because he, lo- he loves to give us lists and you find that in each of his <laughs> Yeah. Uh, different letters. But one in particular is found in Romans chapter 8, verses 5 through 8, that really kind of describes this battle that is going on. Uh, and it says, you know, for those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the spirit, the things of the spirit. For the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the spirit is life and peace. Because the mind set on the flesh is hostile towards God, mm-hmm. for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so, and those who are in the flesh cannot please God. 
you know, so again, you have that, that war of like, here's this flesh nature over here wanting to do its thing. But that spiritual side of us is totally opposite of that and is going in a totally different direction. You know, and you think of that like a, like a push me, pull you a tug of war thing type Mm -hmm. of thing going on, uh, in this battle. Cause both are, I mean, they're not just slightly opposite each other. They are completely opposite each other. Another passage in Galatians 5, verse 17, is so for the flesh sets its desire against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh, for these are in opposition to one another, right. so that you may not do the things that you would please. So again, just giving us that picture of complete opposition and battle that wages war inside of us really on a daily basis. Now, I know that the Bible says that the flesh has desires, and often that word is translated as lust. The flesh has evil desires. In fact, there are half a dozen verses in the New Testament that mentions the lusts of the flesh. And Paul lists for us the works of the flesh, the things that our flesh wants to do and will do naturally if we just let it. Tell us about the works of the flesh. One thing with the works of the flesh, again, everything, you could sum it up as everything that is completely opposite to what God's Word says. Right. And again, Paul gives us a very detailed list uh, in Galatians 5, 19 through 21, that says that now the works of the flesh are evident. Uh, again, those things that are, are shown in our lives, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanliness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like of which I tell you beforehand, just as I also told you in times past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. You know, now looking at this list, I mean, that's a pretty uh, detailed list of the works of the flesh. Uh, It's pretty exhaustive, and each one of those has different little outshoots of it, but those each single one of those pretty much covers it on what the works of the flesh are actually are, how they're manifested in our lives, how they come out uh, in our daily living. And so in Paul's list here, he's got sexual sin, adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness. He's got uh, sins of the disposition, contention, jealousy, wrath. Mm -hmm. He's got sins of behavior. But at the end of it, he says that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. If we live according to the flesh, the kingdom does not Correct. belong to us. Mm-hmm. So we have an enemy within that is at war with the Spirit, which left unchecked will ruin our lives with all kinds of sinful habits and evil behaviors. What is the approach? What's the attitude and the action that the Christian should take in regard to his flesh? How do we do this battle, Chuck? Kind of the a saying comes to mind of we have to be killing sin or sin is going to be killing us. Yeah. 
you know, with the works of the flesh, especially that sinful nature, if we give it an inch, it's going to take a mile. That's mm-hmm. another thing that, you know, we like to we like to make these little concessions because it's like, well, I don't feel like fighting today. I don't want to have to enter into this battle that Paul calls us to, that Christ calls us to, right. really. If you think about it, like when Jesus is telling his followers, both we have it recorded in Matthew and in Luke as well, about if someone is not willing to forsake all, which is basically the works of the flesh and anything else, pick up our cross and follow him, we cannot be his disciple. Like, there's not much uh, argue room in there uh, to say you can have some of the things you want and also have Jesus at the same time. You know, Galatians 5.24 says, Those who are Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. And again, that picture of crucifixion, like, that's violent. (laughs) Like, there is uh, little room for anything left on that list that you can allow yourself for. So again, that stance that you were mentioning, taking, it's like, you know, one of just complete opposition to this you know if you think of you know, uh, a sturdy wall or something that is just withstanding a beating like that's kind of like the opposition we have to have against uh this sinful nature uh that tries to come that is constantly pulling at us yeah you know which is also why then paul tells us that we have to put on the whole armor of god so that you may be able to stand uh during that time I heard someone ask Steve Gallagher one time about a particular temptation, and he didn't know if he was battling the flesh or battling Satan. And Pastor Steve said something that I thought was quite wise. What difference does it make? You Hmm. fight them both the same (laughs) way. We really do spiritual warfare, not only against the forces of wickedness, but against our own flesh. Correct. You know, one thing... um I mean, if you think of the the passage uh, where Paul is telling the Corinthians, you know, that we're to take every thought captive to right. the obedience of Christ. And I've had that question asked before, too. Like, well, is this thoughts from the enemy that he's given me? Or is this just my own flesh coming up with it? And again, it's that same thing. It's like, it really doesn't matter because they're both opposed to God's word, to his commandments. And so we are then to stand in opposition right. against those. It doesn't matter where they're coming from. What matters is what is our response to them? Are we going to take them, adopt them as our own and go with them? Or am I going to say no to it, take those thoughts captive to the obedience of Christ, right. our King, you know, putting them to death on the cross and keep pursuing Jesus with my whole heart? So whether it's of the devil or whether it's of the flesh, our response is all-out war. Correct. And that's something that most people don't like to to talk about. I have guys come in all the time, and they're, like, shocked that they have to be in war all the time. And yet, as I look at Scripture, even including the Old Testament, it is full of warfare. Yeah. All right. Here's the big question, Chuck. How do we say no to the flesh? One thing, I like to keep things really simple Okay. uh, for myself. 
And so it's like, as I look at it, and even as I'm sharing with somebody, if I am, if okay, I'm either saying yes to God, no to the flesh, or I'm saying no to God, yes to the flesh. Mm. And I have different things that I am rejecting. If I'm going to say yes to this flesh nature, this sinful nature, I'm having to say no to very specific things of God's command. Obviously, Paul gives us this whole list of things to say no to. But on top of that, there's all kinds of things like uh, I'm having to say no to my time in prayer uh, in order to give in to the works of the flesh. I'm having to say no to my time in the Word and obeying what the Word is saying to do that. I'm having to be in this uh, flow of just complete selfishness and pride, which is Mm -hmm. totally opposite the mercy of God, which you hear us talk about a lot. Um, So there's all kinds of different things that I'm saying no to and rejecting and turning my back on. So then, so if I flip that around, it's like, okay, well, I've got to say no to the flesh. So what are some things that are coming up when I'm tempted to give into this pull, right? Um, So I've got to do like Paul says in Romans 8 uh, of setting my mind on the things of the spirit. Right. Right. Um, So that would include things like what is... What am I praying for? Who am I praying for? Um, Am I asking for prayer during this time and coming into a place of humility, asking for help, rather than just trying to figure it out on my own? Mm -hmm. The other thing is, what are you filling your mind with from God's Word? You know, are you constantly meditating on this thing that you wish you could do, but you know you shouldn't, so you don't really act on it, but you just keep thinking about it? Or are you going to fill your mind with the cleansing word of God that is able to wash, it's able to renew, it's able to restore, it's able to build up, all of these different things, right? And it's, again, going back to I'm putting my mind on the things of the Spirit, not on things of the flesh. The other part is, and here at Pure Life we talk a lot about being in the flow of God's mercy, mm-hmm. giving out God's mercy to those around us. That can be through prayer for others, uh, especially, you know, if you're not around people, you can't exactly just have people appear for you to give mercy to. So, you know, you're you're praying right. for those around you. Uh, but then also just getting into the needs of others of like, what, how are you giving them? I mean, if we look at Jesus, who was tempted at all points like we are, yet without sin, and you have to see like, wow, he was constantly giving God's mercy to those around him. Um, You know, also just choosing to be thankful to God for what he has provided for us, because I I think it would be safe to say that 100% of the temptation that comes our way is something that we want that we don't have, so we're going to take it for ourselves in some way, shape, or form. That usually is kind of where it falls under. And so if I am in the heart of gratefulness and being thankful, right, rejoicing always, praying without ceasing and everything, giving thanks, again, that's Paul in, you know, First Thessalonians there. If that is my heart attitude, I am able to say no to that fleshly desire, that sinful nature that just wants to go like, hey, you know, Chuck, come this way. You know, Mm -hmm. you want this. And it's like, no, this is contrary to God's word. 
Battles with the flesh tend to come to us in the form of temptations to give in to uh, acts of the flesh. But if we do battle against the flesh with these things that you've said, reviewing the word of God, praying for others, being thankful, asking for help, asking for prayer, pretty soon that desire, that temptation just fades away. That is correct. And that's what victory looks like. Absolutely. But the amazing part is, is God's grace and strength to say no is always there. Yeah. You know, that's one thing that I, I need to be encouraged with it. My guys, whoever it is that I'm talking to, maybe to be reminded of and encouraged is that God calls us to fight, but it's his strength Mm -hmm. that enables us to withstand it. But it's our choice of whether we're going to fight or not. Yeah. And so if we choose, yes, I'm going to fight. Boom. It's like his grace, strength. Boom. It's right there. God is faithful, mm-hmm. and with the temptation will always provide the way of escape Absolutely. that we can bear up under it. Well, Chuck, this has been very, very helpful. I think our listeners will gain a great deal in the battle against the flesh from your words today. Thanks for coming in. Praise the Lord. Thank you for having me. Paul said that the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile toward God. He also said that the flesh lusts against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another, so that you do not do the things that you wish. He's describing the battle that wages within the soul of every true Christian who wants to serve God, but knows the voice in his head that tells him to rebel. But there is victory over the flesh, We can crucify the old nature and we can live in faithful obedience to the Lord Jesus and experience his life. Praise God. We can overcome the enemy within. That's all for today. We'll see you next time. Purity for Life is a production of Pure Life Ministries. For over 30 years, Pure Life Ministries has been the go-to for those whose lives have been devastated by sexual sin. Visit us on the web for more information about our life-changing counseling programs and powerful teaching materials. Also check out our video clips of men and women whose lives have been radically transformed. All that and more at purelifeministries.org.